Welcome to The Rights of Others, the podcast where we explore corporate human rights abuses, the misuse of corporate power, and efforts to seek accountability, transparency, and redress for victims of such abuses. We do so through a conversation with those who have devoted their lives to fighting for and defending the rights of others, talking about what they are working on, how and why they have chose to pursue this fight against corporate injustice. Okay, so um, today we have the fantastic privilege of having with us Amol Mera, who is currently Director of Industry Transformation, one of the best titles that I've heard recently, of the Loudest Foundation. He was previously Managing Director of the Freedom Fund and uh, has been the Director of um, International Corporate um, Accountability Roundtable, ICAR, for several years before that. Um, Amol, welcome to the Rights of Others. Thank you. I'm excited about this conversation. We are too. It's been very, um, very good for us, both Sima and I, thinking that we were going to have you because we both uh, uh, know you for uh, yeah. some years ago. And we, we both really admire your work. And um, mm. of course, um, I've always had great times with you. Mm-hmm. So, Amol, what are you working on at the moment? So at the moment, we're at this really interesting point within the Loudest Foundation where we're looking at how to address our dual goals, which are inequality and the climate crisis, and thinking about how to build a programmatic strategy that really gets at a significant impact on those two uh, targets. So we're doing a lot of really creative thinking around how we can work at the industry level and with the systems of finance and at the points of intersection between those to drive forward this agenda at transforming industry and transforming capital markets to address these two crises. So it's kind of an exciting time to take a step back and think strategically and think creatively. And that's what I'm doing, in fact, just before this call. That's that's fantastic. So um, for those who um, don't know, what is the Loudest Foundation? The Loudest Foundation is a foundation dedicated to those addressing that dual crisis that I mentioned between the climate crisis and inequality. And what we do is we aggregate our work into two um, sort of programmatic streams. The first, the work that I lead and have an incredible team of experts from around the world is focused on what we call industry transformation. We're currently looking at the industries of fashion and the built environment. And I can talk more about each of those later. But we're looking at how we can drive reforms in the global economy by focusing on industry levels. I have a colleague who works and leads our work on capital markets and finance, and she's doing that same sort of strategic analysis and and philanthropy in the space to try to drive reforms by using those levels. And then together, we're really trying to, you know, lift um, work and civil society activity and and engagement and and effort at business with business. to, to sort of shift the global economy towards those two ends. Yeah, this is very interesting then, that you are um, dealing with this intersection, as you said, between equality and climate change. But I just want to pick up on this, what you just said, um, to with business and for business and uh, against business, I can imagine, in some right. occasions, no? So yeah. tell me a little bit more about how this works. How, you know, how do you work with business when 
it's most of them or some of them are at the core of some of the challenges that you're dealing with. And some of them actually, you know, are, are, are the ones that are keeping the status quo so we don't change it, we don't advance in the protection of, of some rights, for example. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what we adopt is a view that we can reap real measurable progress by working with and through business. So that means that that could also be at business at times. So the portfolio includes a number of different um, grants that focus on providing um, sort of more stick approaches like supporting uh, campaigns or activity that might be um, looking at driving business behavior up towards a standard or or clarifying businesses that are not meeting a particular standard, but it also is exploring different carrot methodologies, things like procurement um, and things like addressing um, sort of business uh, networks and industry, so industry sort of bodies and lifting worker participation so that you, know, you can really have workers at the seat of the table um, as well. So yeah, it's, it's sort of looking at the mix between that whole spectrum of, of, of at, with, and through business. Mm -hmm. And what does, um, at, because you've both, uh, you've worked at both advocacy, very research-based advocacy, yeah. and, uh, and now in a position of actually ha having the, the carrots with you, you know, bringing yeah. the money. So okay. uh, in a way, so, so how, how has this changed your own uh, um, work and your own capacity to decide, okay, well, these are, these are uh, causes that are worth it because I have the capacity to change, whilst maybe more an advocacy role is more of the causes that, um, were, that we have to focus because it's something that I really, uh, even if I can't move forward too much, I, I really think it should be in the agenda. Yeah, it's been interesting. So I joined sort of the philanthropic world in the last job I had at the Freedom Fund. And I did come from, as Seema and you know very well, I come from a more activist advocacy perspective. And I still maintain that. I believe that like real social change is always driven by movements. And there's really no, I think, demonstrable major social change that wasn't connected to a community that agitated against something. So I come with that passion um, but I guess for me now, it's been interesting being in the world of philanthropy and trying to, and kind of knowing how, it, what it takes to run a civil society organization and all of the, all of the sort of tensions and the stresses. And I'm trying to think about ways that we can program and support the best in the field, doing the most critical, important, impactful work, but also do it in a way that gives respect to the stresses that they may face dealing with really complex and challenging issues every day. Um, and I think like trying to humanize philanthropy in that way is something that I'm really hoping I can help do. It must be really rewarding when you actually can say, okay, fine. Yes, I will fund you. It must be, uh, to be very, uh, very good to be at the other side of the table instead of the beggar, I mean, the one that can actually provide for something to actually happen. So, so in this context, wh what do you think are the, yeah, the main satisfactions and the main challenges of your current role? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, I, Jill Tucker is an incredible colleague of mine who works on the team and she's leading our fashion uh, labor rights portfolio. And she was a grant, I was a grantee of hers in my previous roles. And I told her to now sort of be on the other side with her, such an interesting, perspective i mean the the act like the and understanding how much it takes to ask for money constantly 
Um, and then finding a donor that's really willing to support good work and not have to make you jump through hoops. That's kind of like what I feel gives me some satisfaction is, is uh, like, yeah, because I have that background on the other side, trying to put forward a portfolio and approach that's like lifting civil society and their, and these groups and not trying to create more burdens for them. So, um, the, interestingly, the, um, the uh, when you say that not having to constantly, you know, justify and constantly, I guess, fill up uh, evaluation forms and the theory of change, uh, prove or assessment, etc. That I think it's interesting. I would like to see your perspective on this because, you know, obviously we need to have accountability for um, the the funds that um, that we are receiving as civil society, as research institutions like mine. But on the other hand, we've become so professionalized in, in applying for money, implementing um, right. uh, the projects, and then evaluating projects and filling forms and filling Excel sheets, which, you know, is the, the <laughs> drive me crazy. So you know, what is this balance between the accountability that civil organizations should have as well for the money they receive? Because at the end of the day, it's either public money or private money that could be spent into something else. And, you know, let us do our work, please. <laughs> kind of, kind of uh, um, th yeah. approach. I think this is like one of those fascinating moments within philanthropy where there's so many discussions now happening around adopting quote trust-based approaches to philanthropy and i will say what i'm really excited about is the incredible colleagues i have at the Lattice foundation that are really leading the charge and looking through from proposal to evaluation how we can adopt a perspective that is um, more aligned with those approaches so it's kind of exciting and again i think it's like an experiment in philanthropy um, and i think we're kind of trying to be at the front edge of that so yeah, I'd, I'd like I'd love for us to be in a place where we can really be not burdening our partners. Yeah, that, that's great. And I guess, Seema, maybe you want to um, uh, jump here because you have the experience as well to have been in a big organization trying to, you know, put certain um, topics in the agenda and to what extent do the, do the those who have the money, the as uh, philanthropists or big organizations, big governments, or even industries that try to, to fund some of the streams of the work we do, to what extent is it easy to maintain a, a level of independence at the same time as a level of accountability as an organization? Yeah, I think that's such a good question, Olga. It's it's a debate that actually, you know, where I am now, we talk about, you know, do we create a strategy because we think it's going to have change and lead to improvement to people's lives? Or do we go for a strategy that we think funders want to fund? Um, it's a really, I think that um, the not-for-profit sector is in a really, I mean, charities in a really tough position. Uh, I mean, particularly in this sort of COVID era as well, where we can see that, um, you know, we all need to do work differently, right? The charity sector. I mean, if, if we were an investigative organization, you have to conceptualize how that's done differently, even in terms of advocacy. Uh, will we be sticking to webinar formats or will we see people in person? All of this affects 
the type of changes that that you can actually um, push for. And for funders, uh, it's interesting because I've known Amol a long time, and I knew Amol as he's smiling that uh, when he wasn't yeah. such a big shot. <laughs> and and this question, <laughs> still not a big and shot. And this question, uh, you know, knowing that actually. He knows very well that for NGOs, because he's an excellent, he was an excellent fundraiser, I know, when he was at an NGO, uh, which was a large reason for the success of ICAR. And, and now having switched to being one that funds, um, he knows well the stress and the tensions that NGOs can face, as well as, you know, it's, it, I do think that NGOs need to be more strategic and perhaps stop competing with each other and generally join the dots, including global organizations to local organizations. We need to think differently and do things differently generally to be yeah. more effective. And well, I, I, you know, this podcast is very much about, of course, uh, it's the rights of others. It's about uh, bringing people on who are in fact fighting for the rights of others. So either professionally or perhaps not professionally, uh, but in their spare time, uh, it defines who they are. Uh, all right, my question is to you is, how did you get here? What made you become uh, mm. a person who wanted to drive uh, human rights uh, and, and inequality, mm. improve corporate responsibility or accountability, I dare say, you know, in, mm -hmm. in the world? What brought you here? Yeah. Well, as Seema, you know very well, I grew up in, I think, I think this is one of those issues that sort of in my DNA, like my ancestry is Indian and my parents moved to Canada from India, very much seeking that sort of dream of hard work plus commitment equals success. And, um, and I was always struck by how vastly different the worlds were that I kind of lived in the sort of Canadian like nature and beauty and, and um, everything at your fingertips and then going to India with my parents and seeing, you know, the abject poverty and just how shocking that was as a kid really stuck with me. And then, you know, my father worked in the oil industry and it, it really clear from, you know, um, his work at Talisman Energies, which you know very well, where he was a reservoir engineer, um, that there were conflicting perspectives, meaning on the one hand, you know, I could see my dad saying, look, this job provides me income and provides you a life. But then realizing that in so doing, he and his company may have been impacting negatively the rights of others. So I think your podcast is perfectly appropriate for me, at least in this notion that like, I've always felt that there is this tension between my life and what I am privileged by and those realities that others face. And I'm just struggling to address that both as a human, but also I believe in my work. You know, Amol, your response is similar to a response that I actually gave, you know, when I, on the first episode, because mm. um, I'm also Canadian, Canadian and I'm also, <laughs> I don't know if you call us uh, the second generation Canadian born, well, first generation yeah. born in Canada, second of immigrant parents and of course of Indian, Indian in our case, um, parents. And um, you do feel this I, slightly unsettled, I suppose, that, um, you know, a bit guilty that, you know, my life is 
very good in many ways and very easy and should why can't it be like that for others um so i guess right. the question i have um i mean really you know this sort of unsettledness that you had do you think it has anything to do with you being i mean perhaps you know a, a canadian generally or or sort of a visible non-white canadian not really being mainstream or you know, I'm wondering in this yeah. movement, uh, we've got a lot going on about sort of racism at the moment and intersectionality. You know, Olga and I, you know, we've had discussions about, you know, but why is it when we look at our own work in this business and human rights space, really, perhaps, you know, we are perpetuating systems of racism and how this work is actually being done and who's actually evolving, proceeding professionally. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, we don't have enough people mm. from you know everyone often I, when i was at amnesty and many other places everyone i know went to cambridge or oxford <laughs> or, i mean i i'm almost right. proud to say i went yeah, to the university of manitoba where's that uh, i mean what are your thoughts right, on right, this it's, right. i mean does yeah, everyone really have equal access to these types of mm. jobs that we do yeah no i think this is the fundamental this is the work I mean, frankly, we are in positions now where we can influence the choices that are made at an institutional level around who gets a seat at the table and what gets valued in terms of grantee partners, in terms of collaborative partners, even as an NGO, you know, you have the ability to say, we're not going to, we're going to choose to work with this entity instead of working with this other one. Even things like who we choose to affiliate with in terms of office space and restaurants that cater to our office meetings. I mean, there are so many millions of little choices that we can make to do better and we have to do better. I mean, I think I've been really struck by this call for us to think about in each of our lives and in the work that we do, how we can address the systemic exclusion that exists across societies. And Black Lives Matter is a complete manifestation of that, right? And so, I mean, I've often thought that philanthropy has actually part, is part of the problem here. Like the metrics that are set for leadership for philanthropy often tend to be based on financial figures and, and financial value in terms of you know, money at the door. Like um, even the targets that are set as KPIs tend to be really financed, like, like economic, sorry, economic based, like, you know, lives saved or, you know, uh, things like that. It's just such a, it creates this pressure to find people who are able to drive those types of results. And at the expense, I think, of thinking about other forms of leadership. Um, so I don't know, I think this is the work. I don't think there's an answer and I haven't really seen anybody do it quote right. I just know that there's a lot of good work happening on it. And thank you. I don't know, what do you think, Olga? Like I'd be keen, yeah, for, to get your thoughts on this, even in academia, you know? Yes. Yeah, well, that's what I wanted to say, you know, you know when you say the, the kind of measurements that we have are all supposedly objective, you know? They're all, right. as you say, you know, the outputs that we produce, or even when we have access to things, it's like the merits we can show for. But um, obviously, objectivity just perpetuates um, a, a previous system in which uh, a, a great part of the population did not have access to. So this um, it, it's interesting in your now in your capacity, you have the the um, you know the power or the capacity to actually jump over this 
supposed objectivity that is going to just maintain and uh, perpetuate the, the inequality. But uh, people like me in uh, uh, public institutions or where we have to justify the spending of public money, we constantly have to justify our decisions right. from an objective perspective. And this is because you are seeing, otherwise you're seeing as if you are discretionary or discriminatory just for your own uh, sake of pursuing your own agenda. When, uh, so this is, this is kind of interesting that you can actually say, well, I don't want to sit in, in the table with you because I have the right, you yourself as the, as the funder, you have the right to decide who sits at your table. Whilst on my hand, um, on, yes. on, on a more yeah. public funds kind of way, I just have to have right. everyone sit at the table and I can, I can only justify who I work with in terms that will not be perceived as discriminatory when they yeah, structurally so are. I mean, I was just seeing that there's this foundation, I forget which one it is, that they've just essentially announced that all of their grant making will be entirely focused on organizations led by visible minorities and people of color. I mean, to think about making such an intentional effort to direct resources to that is going to be a game changer for the field because then if you're at a board level selecting your next ed again because of the power of philanthropy you'll think oh maybe actually we should think about having a visible minority lead this you know so it's like it's such an interesting way but it doesn't i wonder if this is like i wonder when the shoe is going to drop for academia because i have so many colleagues like me who sit in academia and it really still feels so like patriarchal and 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 almost paternalistic you know and so i just wonder like how you flip the switch the other way you've just you've just described it absolutely perfect. yes Sima. <laughs> well i i mean i i don't, I don't know Sima, what do you think well I, I don't know about academia but olga and i were discussing this earlier that we are still living in a world where women uh, definitely academics have to work double what men academics do even to get a status of professor and still have less pay um, you know, what about in the business and human rights field? I mean, we, I, I, as I'm listening, I think we're, yeah. we're constantly saying in our narrative as an advocate, we have to attack, we have to tackle corporate power. We have to make corporates accountable. Um, and I often am struck that, you know, there are many big companies while they are acting irresponsibly in terms of their operations, you know, in the field, actually they're treating a lot of their direct workers um quite well right and you may actually have in a business uh more of a diversity of staff and you may actually have better terms of work yeah. you know than you do in an ngo you know and i have yes. you know i often you know now look at having worked at a few ngos you know i look across thinking well when is the power within the ngos themselves going to shift uh, and it's interesting what you said about funders maybe looking at certain demographics to be present, you know, in terms of actually looking at even who's leading in the NGOs or in the business and human rights space. This is a space that was predominantly occupied by white men. And I would say, um, and that still is largely the case, I would say. And there is a transition, um, you know, but it is interesting to think that even in this space, you know, how can we challenge ourselves to actually make it more equitable uh, to decrease, you know, the, the I, I do think there is systemic bias in this space itself. And I look forward to like, to this generation, even us, like getting in there yeah. and rethinking mm -hmm. and rejigging all of it. Um, yeah, so I a totally question agree. I, yeah. 
And um, I mean, just on that, Seema, like I, I just, I totally agree just to say like, but I also think we have a responsibility to, to use our own power and influence for that. So for me, like what I can control at this point is who I work for. And what I chose intentionally to do to move the Loudest Foundation is to work for a badass female CEO who is like, who is extremely sort of um, ambitious driven and also represents a type of leadership that I think the field needs. I mean, if you look at major philanthropy right now, it's all men that are running these foundations, like the big ones, like the Fords, the OSS, et cetera. I think we should actually ask if that's really okay. And if we're gonna really try to lift institutions that are outside of corporate, we have to, if we're trying to change corporate, we also have to look like, like what the future is on our side too, you know? So, I agree. We need know. to look at, we need to assess how we're looking at the problem, right? And actually challenge, challenge ourselves to look at it a bit differently, which includes who's, who's guiding the narrative. It's a very good point, Amol, and I have to say, uh, you know, where I'm currently working, this is something which I, which I really like, you know, that actually I do have faith in leadership, you know, at the moment. And, um, and I think it's, it's a big deal. I don't know if I had realized how important it is to, to say something, to be able to say that. Amol, would you consider yourself a human rights activist? A hundred percent, I would. And I believe everybody should be a human rights activist. And I think it's so interesting because there's such a taboo that comes with the word activist, and I don't understand it. it I think people think, oh, you know, this person means that they're going to throw, you know, break down windows and burn things. Activism is a spectrum of behavior, and we should feel comfortable that it is defined by what people bring to it. But we should encourage everyone to view themselves as a human rights activist. And I don't do know, you, what you think? think yeah. yeah, I I I proudly consider myself a human rights activist. Olga has shied away from considering herself herself an activist, um, which she can mention. I I totally agree, and uh, we can all own the term. And a goal of this podcast is to get more people to become human rights activists about corporate responsible accountability issues. When I say I don't consider myself a human rights activist, it's out of humbleness i just think what you guys do is so important and has so much capacity to ch bring change how can i bring change from an academic article nobody reads an academic article not even my friends do i disagree i think it's like this is i think the thing is that while i agree that there are the frontline human rights defenders the people that are at the that are staring at the face of the views are really the heroes here all of us are contributing in our way. So like, Olga, your incredible work on unpacking the inane structures of procurement and the way that those can prohibit all of the like the goals that we have is hugely valuable because someone, if you did not do that, we'd still be saying, oh, someone should look at procurement, you know? So I, know, yeah, I just think about, I think about like, I think about it like a battlefield and everybody has a different role. But we're all on it together. Yeah. So difficult to consider yourself an activist of anything if you're talking about the EU procurement directive <laughs> and water <laughs> services or something. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so if we were, if I was in front of my students, well, as I am every year, and when I ask them, 
so why did you choose my subject, which is international human rights law? Um, and they all respond because I want to work in the UN. And uh, it was so, it was so interesting because when I started uh, teaching, some people would say I want to be Kofi Annan. This kind of points out yeah. how, how old I am. But um, uh, you know, everybody from West Africa always wanted to be uh, Kofi Annan. But um, yeah. But so so when you know if I how, how do you work at the UN? But it's not the work at the UN is this, is this kind of euphemism to say I want to work in human rights. I want to have a profession that is a human rights profession. And I don't know how to tell them have a human rights profession, uh, how to do it beyond speak five languages, do a lot of unpaid internships, yeah, and uh, and you know, and and go around and have a lot of skills and maybe land yourself a job as a badly paid researcher to start with. Mm-hmm. So what, is it is what we do then this human rights work? Is this a profession? Is this a vocation? Would you be mm. doing uh, work for the rights of others? If you were in a different field, would you always have that with you? You'll be use it differently. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I think for me, I've always viewed this as so intrinsically part of who I am that like even when the world around me made it difficult for me to get into this field, I just started my own thing. Like what happened after I went to law school was that I couldn't get a job. I graduated with like one of the world's deepest economic collapses. And I, I think I applied to a hundred plus jobs, including those those types of fellowships at Human Rights Watch and Amnesty. And so then you just pick up, you just pick up and you just realize like if you're really committed to this, I started a website called The Right Respect in 2009. And I started blogging about private security companies and human rights accountability. Someone from the UN Working Group on Mercenaries read something I wrote, said, hey, can we come talk to you about it? If we went to Geneva, I did a whole session with the working group there. And then I met a donor she said, oh, you know, I'd be really interested. You should talk to Katie Redford from Earthrights. Like, you know, there's all these connections that happen when you just put yourself and when you just say yes and you challenge and push yourself. So like, I, I, for me, I don't, people think, oh, you know, you must have had like a, like there's those people that get those fellowships at Human Rights Watch and good for them. But then there's those people that never were even competitive for them and just had to do their own thing and hustle. And that was the story of my human rights career. And I still feel like I'm hostile. And I and if I didn't, then I would be doing something wrong. Don't you think? It's always a hustle, isn't it? That's the fun of it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree, Amol. You're a very hardworking person and, and there is a hustle. And I think that you have the gift of the of the cleaner and the and the facilitator. And and I dare to say maybe you should run a podcast, but be honest, <laughs> don't compete with us. I'll sub uh, in when one you of you wants a holiday break. You have a gift of bringing people together um, and to also recognize people who have strengths and good ideas, which I think is what you did on the corporate crimes element, which I'll be grateful to you for um, oh, for many years. Um, more to more to the, you know, sort of the substantive work, uh, Amul, that you're working on now. You had mentioned, of course, the climate crisis and inequality. It's such a massive space. A lot of people listening to this podcast will wonder, well, how can I engage with these issues? I don't work, you know, with a human rights organization or a, an environmental yeah. organization. How can I engage with these issues? How can I get better, whether it's regulation or, I mean, tell me, what advice would you give to, to those people? Yeah. I mean, for me, I always felt that operating in a sector by sector, especially in the field of corporate accountability and business and human rights, 
disaggregate it and understand how you can do things either by breaking up the laws that regulate or oversee companies, the lack of those laws, or by adopting like a lens on how those sectors themselves operate. So like really practically what I think we do above and beyond at the Loudest Foundation is focus on driving reform in those sectors by looking at key issues facing those sectors. So let me give you an example. We have this whole portfolio we're building on the built environment, which is essentially the buildings and structures around us where we live and work. What's so fascinating, it could be amorphous, right? Like that seems like you could do anything. What we've decided to do is focus on a critical driver of carbon of, of, of carbon um, in the building process, which is use of concrete and steel in buildings. And our whole work there is driving an agenda to use natural materials and wood as a, an accelerator towards decarbonization. This is such a specific intervention, but it has such a huge impact given the scale of, of concrete and steel and the ways that they're contributing negatively to our environment. So like, I think the mantra should be disaggregate the problem and then pick a piece and get working on it. Great, Amal. Uh, it's, it's brilliant to just listen um, how um, you have such an insight into this complicated, complicated industry. My question more is towards the personal side. So you explained a little bit about uh, how you saw the stark differences between Canada and India. Um, what was that emotional journey? If you are comfortable to share that, uh, to see that, okay, so this is the problem and I am in this state. How did you slowly move towards this kind of approach where you are right now? Uh, and the second fold is that you also mentioned that you still kind of express it, that struggle through your work. And that's the kind of hustle you have. And if you can expand more on it. So, so whatever part you want to address. Yeah, sure. I love that question, Raza. And it's been something that I've been really challenged by and noodling in the context of the George Floyd killings and killing and the Black Lives Matter movement. But like this question about, is there an end state to kind of awareness of one's privilege and of one's um, sort of biases. And I don't think there is. I kind of believe now more than ever that I need to keep on asking myself these questions and be holding myself accountable to them. So like that experience I had in India of realizing how blessed I was and how I felt so, um, I felt so kind of lost for what I could do to help those communities in India that were so impoverished. I want that to always be something I'm searching for because I feel like that's the, that's the journey here. And the same way that I recognize my privilege as, you know, an educated male, I want to always be wrestling with what that means for people that don't have those two attributes. So I don't know, Raza, like, I don't know what you think about that, but I, I, for me, this is a journey, not an end result. Brilliant. Thanks. I don't know. Do you do you kind of agree, or do you see it sort of differently? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the, the only thing which I, which I had in my mind was about. Um, it is, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it seems really well when you're sitting here and what you are doing right now, and some of the other things I've listened, which you were talking about. Uh, I mean, uh, if someone wants to, you know, uh, check out some of your YouTube, there is some videos around uh, some policies and. I was really interested 
that when you mentioned that would your struggle yeah. kind of have that flavor and then when you are sitting on the stage and talking about the actual things so it was yeah. it was interesting for me to listen that how important that journey is for you still yeah um, so yeah yeah beautiful yeah thank you i agree i don't know seema olga too like i kind of think about this in the context of even this podcast the rights of others we are choosing we are speaking you're speaking to a select few people right that's privilege you're giving you're giving a platform to those people so i hope that we all recognize the millions of other people that are human rights activists in their own ways that don't get interviewed by youtube and the same way that you too are doing the interviewing that's privilege too yeah that that's that's a very good point and sima and i you know we we are uh when we're thinking about who do we want to talk to who do we want to you know hear from and uh so there are some people that we absolutely knew we wanted to hear from because we know them because they're friends because we admire their work and you know and this you you're definitely one of them and you were super high on our list from the very beginning but you know we also had the, the we've had the um to reckon with ourselves the some of these people that are our friends and uh, that we know are doing very good work I white males, white Western males. And at some point, both of us said, oh, well, we would love to have uh, so-and-so, but to be honest, we need other voices as well. And part, as Sima was saying, you know, this business and human rights and the corporate accountability world is still very white and very male dominated, especially in the fields of, um, you know, uh, finance and finance responsibility, and even, you know, uh, litigation and uh, the, the hardcore, uh, traditionally more testosterone field uh, parts of the uh, parts of uh, it. So for us, it's been a reckoning as well. The two of us have, I have to say, you know, sometimes we'd say, well, yes, this person, not this person, or not just yet. And it, it, it makes us very interesting debates between the two of us. Don't you think, so? Yeah, I was laughing, Amol, when you said the, the platform privilege, because I'm inviting anyone listening to this podcast to just, if you want to be on the podcast, please send an email. <laughs> Give it, give us a big yeah. like or some comment on Spotify, and and you will, we will definitely call you up, and we will, we will uh, invite you to speak. So it is nice to have uh, actually a little bit of uh, power in that sense of determining who who we want to give the platform to. So I do agree with you, Olga, and there is that power, and I think there's also, in my view there's a i see a limitation due to my own biases my own you know unconscious biases and you know this is a very intellectual space you know i mean it's right everybody's got university degrees and university degrees and then somehow this has qualified us to speak about john ruggie's un protect respect framework and the guiding right. principles and you know right. what's best for communities on the ground so it's incredible that you know, all of this is basically intellectualized a space and an issue, which actually really is a bottom-up issue. I mean, of course, it's bottom-up and top-down, totally but agree. it's almost ironic that these are the people who are sitting at the UN Business and Human Rights Forum talking, although there is a big effort to bring people from, from, from the ground up. Um, and I think part of that, why you see this more in this space than perhaps other human rights forum, is because of the, the multinationals, because of the corporate talk. 
And I think it is true that because it's communities with corporates, there is this whole in-between of like, well, how do you affect corporate change? And a lot of that is about tackling the entity of the company, you know, which ends up being now this yes. more, um, less human rightsy, but more corporate law, <laughs> more financial regulation, more, uh, you know, procurement, you know, it's all of these other things, which traditionally, have not fallen within a neat human rights space, right? Where, where human rights issues are more owned by yeah. people who are being affected right. by those issues. So moving forward, I hope that we can be more conscious about that and seek to get people who don't have necessarily the demographic, in my view, the university education in particular, or that particular, you know, view, but sort of looking at people who are perhaps, you know, have worked in, you know, a factory for a number of years and can give us a position as someone who is really pushing the labor change, you know, at that level, I would, I would think that that would be incredible. And now that we've gone online because of coronavirus, whereas before we wanted to visit people and interview them in person, perhaps it gives them more of an opportunity in terms of equal access to be able to do something that otherwise yeah. we would not have pushed ourselves enough to do. So this is all, this is about becoming better, you know, all of us, or at least me becoming better at how I'm yes. an advocate in this space. So on the final question, cause we have, I've, I know that we could speak much longer and probably had a, if we had a yeah. bottle of wine, we would. Although, although I don't, or I don't, a <laughs> yeah, I don't know if Raza drinks wine, but yes, he does. <laughs> Um, so what's next, Amol? Tell us what's next. Where, where are you going to go from here? And and really, if you think there's anything really priority critical, last thing you want to say to our listener, um, please do. Yeah, I think what's next. Sure, great. Yeah. Well, first, thank you. I think this is such an important contribution to the discourse and the field. And I wish we had more of these. So keep on making these podcasts. I've been a listener to your other ones, and I think keep keep this up. Um, so thank you. I think the other thing for me is to really use the platform that I've been given and recognize that it's a, that I've been given a platform and try to do the best I can with it in terms of addressing the impacts of this global economy on, on the rights of others and trying to work with others to shift the global economy that's better for them. I think that the more I can view myself as an instrument of social change and help channel energy towards like the ways that I can add value, then I feel like I'm doing it and the work. Um, so my, my focus is really kind of, is that, and, um, and I think we can get there. I mean, I also think that there are questions about how we fit as a human rights community into this social movements that are happening now, like the Black Lives Matter movement, the climate movement. And I think we should really kind of be guided and follow those instead of trying to sort of usurp or take them under us. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of wrestling with all those questions and I hope to be wrestling with them when we next chat over two bottles of wine post-coronavirus. Of course, and we, we will be wrestling with them for many years and so will you. Yeah. And uh, we, we knew that we were going to have a really interesting conversation, but actually it has proved uh, even even more. And uh, thank you, Amal. It's, thank well, thank you. you for, you know, the, the, the talking to us. Thank you for the work you do. I think, um, you know, the uh, human rights, the corporate accountability, climate change, inequality world, actually it, it's going to be much better served now that you have 
yeah. and even uh, more capacity to convene us all and uh, and to choose who you're going to to uh, push even more with funding. So um, it it's fantastic as always to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, nice to see you all. Thank you so much for the invitation. Can't wait to do it in Amsterdam. Yeah, By exactly. And if and as Seema said, if you're listening to this podcast, email them. Get on this podcast. <laughs> yes, we would love to we hear you. We also need some likes. We need All some right. likes apparently to go up the podcast chain, <laughs> right, Raza? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we gotta go. Thank PR. you so much. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Okay. Chat later. Thank you, Raza. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye, people. Bye.